Well, I'm going to offer a prayer for us. Uh, Let me pray for us. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, we're in this sermon series called Cross Reference. And the goal of this series is to remind us how tightly knit the First Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, what many people refer to as the Old Testament, is linked with the New Testament. And that the God of the First Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And the love of God revealed in the First Testament is the same love of God revealed in the New Testament. And so that's what this whole season with this cross-reference series has tried to do. It's been very exciting for me to do. I mean, I've learned a lot. I hope you've learned a lot. Uh, And today I want to say a special thanks to one of my seminary professors. Uh, Reverend Dr. John Holbert is, the, is a um, professor emeritus of homiletics, which is a 25-cent fancy church word for preaching. He is the uh, professor emeritus of homiletics at Perkins School of Theology at SMU. And um, I had him for preaching. I had him for some Old Testament classes. Uh, he's quite brilliant. And and I spent some time, I read a lot this week about the texts we're using today, and uh, true to form, he did a beautiful job uh, breaking open the First Testament reading from Numbers. And so uh, I have been completely inspired by his exegesis, his, his study of that text and the relationship it has to the First Testament reading, which is from the Gospel of John uh, in verse 3, this, that is the conclusion of the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus. When I was working in student activities at Texas A&M University, I had a friend, a, friend, a, a professional colleague that was in that office as well. She was an Arkansas Razorback, and so we had not much in common. No, just kidding. Uh, We had a lot in common. We were very good friends, became very good friends. And every day during the lunch hour, for a couple of years at least, maybe more, we would go to the gym, the old gym there on the campus. This was before a lot of the construction had gone on there. But the old gym, and there was was what they called the cage that had all the, uh, the, the clothes that you could check out to work in, work out in. And so we'd we'd get these stretchy maroon-colored pants, shorts, and a maroon and white striped T-shirt, sleeveless T-shirt, and then we'd go out on our jog around the campus. We were lovely. (laughs) Now, I loved Charlotte, and Charlotte loved people, and there was a woman that worked in the the cage, we called it, and she was just grumpy. And so Charlotte decided, well, I'm going to win her over. I'm going to win her for Jesus. Now, Charlotte was a good, Bible-loving Baptist. And so she was going to win this woman for Jesus, and she did. She, over the course of about six months, she kept working her and working her and working her until the lady smiled and started talking to us and and all of that. But one day, Charlotte and I were out running around the track, and um, we got to talking about religion, 
Now, I was a good, uh, not so Bible knowledge Methodist. I mean, I knew the Bible. I knew a lot of verses. I just didn't know their address. <laughs> and so uh, we're going along, and we get to talking about it. And Charlotte said, well, are you saved? And I was like, well, okay, well, what do you mean by... She had, there's no questions here. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Are you saved? And I said, well, I, I, I guess. And she said, that's not good enough. I mean, just stopped in her tracks. We had to stop running. That's not good enough. Well, we finally got back off on another track of conversation, but that troubled me so deeply that I went back and changed my clothes, and I walked across the street to my church. And I asked to see the pastor. And I just broke down crying and said, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And he said, well, let's talk about this a while. And so we did. Well, I imagine I'm not the only one who has bumped up against that question, am I? Either you encountered it maybe in your upbringing in your own church, or maybe you've run into somebody who's confronted you with that question. And so... I guess what I want to say today is let's take a moment to talk about what it means to be saved. What does that mean? And how do we deal with that? And can we listen to what it means in Scripture in order to not just close people off because they have a particular understanding of that that may be different than our own? Or maybe can we be not so frightened of our questions that we ask about, well, what does that mean to you to be saved? Can we raise questions that help break open the scriptures for us, that help us encounter the living God in ways that are transformative? So that's, that's really a bit about what I want to say today. You know, I want to tell you that I don't think Numbers is at the top of the best reading books of the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's just not. And so I just want to say that this little passage we heard today that Shelby read is, um, well, it wouldn't have even made it into our radar except for the passage from the Gospel of John that we heard. And, and you might have not actually even heard that. You know, because uh, what the, pas the passage from the Gospel of John does is actually make an allegory from this story, from Numbers. Now let's remember here that the word allegory means that there is a representation of an abstract or spiritual meaning that is given meaning through a concrete or material example. Okay? So, um, so John reads here, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up that whoever believes in that one may have eternal life. Now, that's where we tend to focus our, our understanding in the third chapter of John, that, that whoever believes is saved, right? That's been the whole focus. I mean, that, that's the passage of Scripture that people actually memorize. I mean, people can quote that Scripture. And I'm not so sure we all often really fully understand it because I think there's a lot there. 
There, in the midst of Jesus' famous response to the Pharisee Nicodemus about being born again or born from above, is this for God so loved the world or the cosmos? And, uh, and then we get this note about Jesus being lifted up in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And that's where the link is. So let's not toss away this passage from Numbers because it's linked very closely to this very central passage for the Christian faith. So both stories contain a reference to being saved or salvation. And that, of course, is a question. What does that mean? What did it mean for them in the Hebrew scriptures? What does it mean for Jesus in the New Testament scripture in the conversation with Nicodemus? And what does it mean for us today? as postmodern people with different understandings of creation and people and that type of thing. So on the one hand, the rich symbol, symbolism in the Gospel of John feels the worlds away from that seemingly magical thinking that appears to inform the ancient story of Numbers. But on the other hand, it may well be that the writer of the Gospel of John had something similar in mind. And that's what we've got to plumb. We've got to plumb that out and find out how do these things come together. The book of Numbers is an odd book. It's an odd collection of stories, laws, and old poems. Bits of ancient, ancient texts. And... There's a few things that we remember. I mean, Numbers has the famous talking donkeys. And Numbers also has the story about too many quail. And Numbers also has the grand priestly blessing that we can pretty much all say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make the Lord's face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the Lord's countenance upon you and give you peace. Interestingly, from our sermon last week where we talked about the Psalms and their, the constant appeal throughout the Psalms of God turn your face to us. That last line of the priestly prayer in Numbers is about that. Lift up your countenance. The Lord turn the Lord's face toward you and give you peace. Still, like I said, Numbers is not the most popular book of Scripture. Now, the Gospel of John may well be, but not Numbers, okay? But here John drags this little story about Moses in the wilderness with the people of Israel, and this is what we get. I mean... It comes from a very different time and place from where we are. It comes from a different time and place from where Jesus was. So here are a few insights about the story that I hope will shed light on it. So the Hebrews, upon their escape from Egypt, uh, went out into the wilderness between Egypt and the land of Yahweh's promise. And they famously grumbled and complained to Moses, who called them a stiff-necked people. And they complained, and I don't know if you caught this, but they said, uh, there is no food, there is no water, and the food is miserable. Okay, wait, they just said there is no food, but the food is miserable. Okay. 
And they lacked the creature comforts that they said they had in Egypt. Well, no matter how false those memories are, that's what they were thinking. Now, I don't know anybody like that, do you? And they wandered deeper and deeper into the Sinai Desert and its forbidding and seemingly endless landscape of dust and more dust and more dust. And they leave Mount Hor, and that's evidently located on the edge of the land of Eden, Edom and on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And though if you follow that story carefully and look at the geography of that space in that time, you will question well, it doesn't fit. But the point is not the geography. The point is to give you the sense that they're wandering. Now, I know that uh, Travelocity says not all who wander are lost. That's not true of these people. They are lost, and they are wandering, and they continue to wander. And the other really main point of all of this is that the people grow impatient. I mean, they want God to act. They want God to act now. They want God to act in the ways they want God to act, which sounds a little familiar to me. Uh, and, and finally, in their frustration, uh, the scripture says, the people of Israel became impatient on the way. This is the story we know. This is the story of the Israelites that we know. I mean, they make it clear to Moses and to God that they wish that they were anywhere but here. And though they've been given food to eat and water to drink, they'd rather be anywhere but here. And so the people whine to Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We, they get food every morning, quail and manna. And manna is that light, flaky stuff, a little sweet. But that's what they get every day. Now, they're far from our DoorDash culture, right? I mean, we probably can't even grasp this. Unless your wife who does all the cooking leaves for a week, and then you figure out that, well, peanut butter sandwiches, they work. Um... The, you know, this is uh, bad for them, and they think it's really bad. They're tired of the quail, they're tired of the manna, and evidently God's not impressed by that, and so instead they get poisonous snakes. Seraphim snakes is actually what the Greek uh, translation for that would be. Seraphim, or Hebrew translation. The seraphim snakes. Now, the seraphim snakes were more like dragons. They had very sharp teeth and very long claws and little bat-like wings. They were more like dragons. And so the people scream at Moses and says, We have sinned against you and God, and please take these away from us. And so God has Moses put a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up. And so when the seraphim snakes come around, the people just have to look at it and they are saved. And that's where our reading ends today. 
Now, let me just say something. You, of course, know that all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, particularly in these early scriptures of Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, we get stories that tell us why things are the way they are, right? So when uh, they're trying to figure out why women have such pain in childbirth, the story of the sin of Adam and Eve comes into play, right? And why does the snake crawl on its belly? The story of Adam and Eve, that's a, a story that tells the purpose of things, and that's kind of what's happening here. And that there is a sort of mystical thinking. Well, you know, we also have mystical thinking. I mean, I was talking to my sister yesterday, and she said, well, you know, sometimes you see these fires in the, on the West Coast, and, we, and, and you hear about these floods in Tennessee, and this COVID thing that's going all around the world, and you kind of wonder, did we do something wrong? Well, yeah, we did some things wrong. We sure did, but uh, this is not God's punishment. We've created uh, situations, but this is the magical thinking of a historic people, okay? So, um, And, and so the idea of the bronze snake is all over the Near East. Because snakes had, uh, the ancient people felt like snakes were like um, symbols of both life and death. Because snakes can regenerate some of their parts. And so that's, they can be reborn. And so we kind of, I mean, you know, like snakes, I'm not good with them, but, uh, you know, snakes can regenerate. And so there's this meaning in the snakes that, um, oh, wow, there's life and death there. Or we could reverse and say there's death and life there. Well, um, in the New Testament, we get the story of Jesus hanging on the cross. Hanging on a cross of death. And that becomes the way we who are doomed to die may believe. We may look on him and gain eternal life. So again, we have this business of death and life at work. And I think that's where the Gospel of John is connecting with this ancient story. Raymond Brown, who was a 20th century American Roman Catholic priest and prominent biblical scholar, spelled out the implications for us. He says the first step in Jesus' ascent is when he is lifted up on the cross. The second step is when he is raised from death. And the third step and final step is when he is lifted up to heaven, the ascension. Okay? In other words, Jesus is lifted up to the cross from death and to heaven, and that lifting is reminiscent of the writer of the Gospel of John to the lifting up of the saving pole of the bronze snake. And both the image of the snake and the image of Jesus being lifted up reminds us that the thing that might kill us may also be our path to life. The very thing that might kill us. I mean, and so can we wrap our modern, postmodern minds around this? Can we live more fully if we face those things that can kill us? A therapist might tell us to name our dragons. Name your dragons. And if you name your dragons, you are better able to overcome them. And it is that perhaps our dragons feel a little bit like seraphim snakes. 
right? If we consider that this is what the ancient Israelites encountered. So is our gazing upon Jesus Christ a means by which death can also bring life? My good friend, Reverend Alejandro de la Torre, used to meditate for long periods of time on Jesus on the cross. It's a very traditional Catholic way of understanding faith. And in that meditation came to a deep love of the work of God in Jesus Christ. I also might say, quoting the famous theologian Clary Belcher in Steel Magnolias, <laughs> that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Facing our own demons, whose desire is for our death, may offer us fuller and richer life. Of course, our salvation, our being saved in this life and the next, is best contained in the last two verses that we heard this morning from the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world, giving the only one, the human one, so that everyone who believes in that one may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the human one into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through this one. That's the verse we miss. The one we tend to stay with is, for God so loved the world. We forget, in fact, that God did not send the human one, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing in the book of Colossians, says that the mystery of Christ is very simple. It's just this. Christ is in you. The living, risen Christ is in you. So therefore, you can look forward to the sharing of God's glory. It's that simple. That is the substance of our message. Richard Rohr, writing about that, says that Paul is a mystic who sees things holistically, and that the Christ mystery, according to Paul, as he speaks in Colossians, is the indwelling of the divine presence in everyone and everything. In fact, the great mystics of the Christian faith say that this mystery that is known as Christ, the risen Christ, has another name. Everything in its fullness. Rhineland mystic Mechtild of Maidburg said that the day of my spiritual awakening was a day I saw and knew I saw all things in God and God in all things. And 20th century Trappist mystic Thomas Merton wrote, Christ prayed that all people might become one as Christ is one with our Abba in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when you and I become what we are really meant to be, we discover not only that we love another perfectly, but that we are both living in Christ and Christ in us, and we are all one in Christ. So Christ, Jesus, the man of Nazareth, who takes on the transcendent nature of God in the name of Christ, the anointed one, and the Messiah, is the one who is indwelling in all the universe along with God and with the Holy Spirit. And through that, we are part of that mystery, Christ in us. 
When I got to my pastor's office that day, he said, you know, um, I'll take your way. I'll take your way of asking questions any day. Because it is through the asking of questions about our faith, our salvation, our being saved, that the whole world breaks open for us. That all of a sudden, we begin to encounter the Holy Spirit who guides us to show us what love and life look like. We begin to understand that Jesus was the human manifestation of God's love in the world. We begin to see God in all things and in all people. So ask your questions. Don't let somebody shut you down with their formula for what they think will save you. Because what will save you has already been accomplished in the love of God revealed in Jesus, shown to us daily in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes reading the old, old story of the First Testament can shine light on the New Testament and its witness of life, death, and resurrection in Jesus Christ. And so, shines light on our own death and resurrection. This is our salvation. So that we can say with certainty, why, yes, as a matter of fact, I am saved. Thanks be to God. Amen.